Uh, we're kicking off today a new series, um, and the series kind of germinated by an event that took place eight months ago, I think, for me. I knew I was finishing up school, and I realized when I stopped paying tuition, some of the access that I had will end. Like, I won't be able to log in and get into places and get information. So I spent a good deal of time just downloading stuff that I knew, hey, I'd like that later. I'd like to reference that at some point. And I had a professor, probably my favorite professor, that gave me access to his Dropbox. You know what Dropbox is? It's a file sharing platform um, on the internets. So he gave me access to this thing. And on a late Monday night, I decided, you know what? I just want all that information in there. So, so I kind of highlighted it all, and I just dragged and dropped it onto my desktop into a file. And then I, I let my laptop go as it downloaded it. And I thought, no problem. Next morning, I'm in an elders meeting. I'm taking notes on my laptop about the elders meeting. It's like 6.30, 6.15, somewhere in there. And I get a message that comes across from that professor. And he's like, last night, you wiped out all my files on Dropbox. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's not exactly what I intended to do. But... I'm a real smart aleck, and I knew he no longer had any papers of mine to grade. So I kind of said, okay. So I emailed him back, and I said, yeah, it's part of my plan to rule the world. Send. <laughs> to which he sent this back. He sent back, like, immediately said, well, of course, Matt, you're going to rule the world. To which I sent back, well, people do kind of like me, you know? <laughs> Here's what he was meaning. You're a believer in Jesus. Of course you're going to rule the world. That's not even a question. And so that started like this thought process of how many people really know that and how many people actually live that. And the name comes from, uh, you ever play checkers? Yeah, I play checkers with Elijah. And unless Elijah does this, anyone play checkers where you keep the four guys on the back line? Don't do that. That is the wrong way to play checkers. I hate it. When people do that, I'm like, this is the stupidest game ever. Now it's just like a game of how, how many times can you move into every little corner? I just hate it. So, but Elijah beats me when he does that, so he does it quite often. And because he's my son, I accept it. But with you, it's unacceptable. What happens, though, when you play checkers the way it's designed to be played, and you make it through all the obstacles, and you get through, and you get to the other side, what do you say? King me. All right? To me, that's it. Life is not like a box of chocolates. Life is like a game of checkers. And this life, if you understand those kind of things, it makes sense and you start to live differently, okay? So that's really the whole goal of this series. It's, it's kind of makes sense of, okay, uh, I get this. So today we're gonna go Old Testament and it's going to be theological, from my bent, which is always dangerous. So take notes, pay attention. It's going to be a bit thick. You're going to have to tune in because there's a lot to cover and it's not that simple. Okay. So we're going to start in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32. I think Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And we're going to just glance at it, but maybe it'll intrigue you enough 
where you really study it. So Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, second law is what it means. Verse seven, listen to this carefully. Remember the days of old. It's a command. Consider the years of many generations. Consider the, the, the lives of people that live there. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Here you go. Here's what you wanted. When he divided mankind, when he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. What are we supposed to remember? Here's what I think is happening. It says, there was a time when the Most High divided the nations. When were the people of earth divided? Babylon, excellent, right? That's when God divided the people. So this is a reference back to that time. And when you see the phrase days of old, typically it's referring to the time before Israel's history. And Israel's history starts in Genesis 12, when Abraham is called, God covenants with him. So anything before that is the days of old. That's before our history. That's old stuff. So if you know the book of Genesis, Genesis divides into two chunks. Genesis 1 through 11 is everybody, all nations. But from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 50, it becomes about Abraham and his descendants. God narrows down to this one people group, okay? So here's what I think happens. This is me. You can figure out your own, read commentaries, check it out. I have no problem with that. Here's what I think is happening. Um, God, because of the events of Genesis 11, we'll explain that in a bit. It's the last straw. God does something. God says, I'm rebooting my plan. Same goal, same everything. But I'm rebooting it through this one guy named Abraham. And out of him will come this one nation. And out of this one nation will come the one Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's going to be the restorer. But the other nations, right? The other nations they're going to be given over to this, verse 8 says, the number of the sons of God, or the, the Benai Elohim. They're going to go with these guys, but verse 9, my portion is Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's great-great-grandson, okay? And then God says, because they're my inheritance, here's what I'm going to do with them. Verses 10 through 14, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to carry them on eagles' wings. They're going to be, it's just going to be awesome. But then he says, here's what they did to me. Verses 16, 17, they made me jealous with strange Elohims. They sacrificed to demons, verse 17, to new gods that had come recently. 
So even though they're my inheritance and I've covenanted with me, with them, there's gonna be this struggle that happens, okay? So big picture, here's what happens. You got Babylon, God grabs his people. They're my people. The other nations, but until the time of the Messiah, the other nations are given over to the Benai Ah Elohim. Now there's a big debate on what that means. Who are these sons of God? And here's where I land. I think they're demons. And I think something happens in Genesis 11 that God says, okay, you want this? You can have it. I'm gonna give you over to these entities. And if you read the New Testament, you see this echo of really a spiritual realm and a spiritual world. Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Ephesians 2, verse 2, that we all had our walk, our conduct, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So, so you see this, there, there, there's this other kind of group. And so I believe the other nations, Genesis 1:11, were given over to these other little G gods, if you would, demons. Because Paul says those idols, behind those idols, there's a demon. Read 1 Corinthians. So they're given over. Read the book of Daniel, where Babylon is actually guarded by some kind of powerful entity that actually won't let an angel Gabriel come and deliver a message that there is this force. And if you read history, there's this fascinating thing that like ancient states, city-states, all of them had a patron deity, a certain kind of deity that they said were given to this deity. Read the book of Acts. The city of Ephesus is given over to Diana or to Artemis, the, the Greek name and the Roman name. So Genesis 11 happens. There's a division God says, Israel's my inheritance. I'm gonna do something with them. And eventually out of them, all families will be blessed, the Davidic or the Abrahamic covenant. And in the meantime, you other nations, you get what you asked for, okay? So God, if you would, reboots with Israel, with Jacob. And the big question when you think about the Bible is this, what was the original plan then? If, if there's some change, some modification because of Genesis 11, and they're, we're really taught to go check that out, look at what happened, what was the original plan? And, and here's why I'm explaining all this to you. I want you to have a big picture understanding of the Old Testament, because I think it's real important. It's like this. Um, have you ever read the Old Testament? Did you find it difficult? Okay, if you're honest, you're going to say, Absolutely. Here's why. I liken the Old Testament to this. It's like trying to put a puzzle together without having the picture. Ever try to do a puzzle like that? You're like, what in the world? How do I put all these pieces together? But if you get the big picture, then you start saying, oh, that's where that goes. Oh, that's where that, oh, that's how this thing fits together. So I'm giving you a big picture that's going to launch us into this series because it helps you connect the dots and put the big picture together. So God reboots, but what was his first design. Well, if you ever want to know God's original intent, guess where you go? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That is before the fall, before corruption, before problems, you get original intent. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And if we can grasp this big picture, 
It protects us from something that I've witnessed over now 11 years of Edgewater. People get saved. They're excited. They plug into a body. They start enjoying fellowship. But then a year or two goes by, and guess what I see happen to these people? They say, now what? Now what? Been coming here, been doing this thing. Now what? Because I think if you got the wrong narrative, what happens is you almost have this idea that, that the community, church, the ecclesia, the called out people, that we're just kind of here waiting to die, right? And then go to heaven and get a harp and play on a cloud for a while. So church then, instead of being the brilliant thing that Jesus birthed, church then is like a convalescent home where you just sit here, man, can't wait to die and go to heaven. And then our only job in the meantime, in this meantime, is to invite other people into the convalescent home. Bro, you should come. Come to the convalescent home with me, man. Why? Well, we can sit and die together. Oh, yeah, dude, I am so down for that. I don't think that's compelling. I think there's, a, there's actually a much more compelling story that's in the Bible that's real and it's right, okay? So that, that's some of the things I'm trying to, to be foundational about today. So Genesis 1, let's look at God's original intent. And, and I'm just gonna give you a little Bible help. If you have a newer translation, verse 27 of Genesis 1, is it different than the other verses? How it's formatted? Like it's block, 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 and then it's like narrower. Anybody have that? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, that's such an excellent help. Because if you read Genesis, there are these little things and they're poems usually, and they're massively important. And if you just study those where, where it blocks in like that and becomes a poem, oh, it's so helpful. But that's free, okay? So here, here I'll give you the backup for, before we get to that little poem. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, Imago Dei, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Plural unity. And verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. If you know the flow of Genesis, it's God just creates day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, time out. Like it's an abrupt move. Wait a second. Let's do something else. Let's do something brilliant. Let's make humans and let's make them image bearers, right? The pinnacle. So humanity, you and me, we are different than the rest of created order, right? We're not a dog. We're not a cat. We're not a kangaroo. We're on a different order. Minimally, you have to say that. Okay, so we become the image of God. Now, what does that mean? 
People always ask that question. What does it mean to be the image of God? Is it the attributes that we have? Like we're smart, we have intelligence. So that's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom? I don't think so. I think animals have intelligence, right? I think cats actually invented the internet, <laughs> right? They rule it. Grumpy, amen, someone's amen, yeah. Grumpy cat, you know how much grumpy cat is worth? $100 million. I mean, that, that cat, boy or girl, I don't know what it is. It's grumpy, I know that much. It's ruling, man. Kim Kardashian, take that. Like, you have nothing on grumpy cat. So there's intelligence, right? So then other people say, no, we're, we're image of God because in chapter two, God breathes into humanity and it says we become a living soul or a nefesh in the Hebrew. So that's why. Well, I say wrong again because verse 21 of chapter one when God creates animals, he says they are a living nefesh. Same word. So what is it? I think it is a status. That God has said to humanity, you are my image bearers. It is a status and a position we sit on, if you would. We have Everything else is the means to accomplish it. Our intelligence, our creativity, our gifts, our talents, our environment, all that stuff, our money, all that is to then carry out this image-bearing status. So God says this to mankind, have rule, have dominion on earth. What God is saying is this, I rule the universe and I have dominion on the universe. Be me, if you would, be me on earth. Reflect me, my rule, my righteousness, my justice, my generosity, my kindness, my compassion. Be me on earth. Do the same thing that I'm doing in the universe. You guys do it on planet earth. Have rule. Be an image bearer. Reflect me. Okay? How does humanity do? Well, you got Genesis 3, where... Instead of listening to God, Adam and Eve listened to this serpent who we later find out is Satan and he's on the wrong team and they make some big mistakes. So God comes in and there's a great little poem in there. He says, hey, there's still hope. There's coming one who will crush this dude's head and he's gonna give you guys new hope, all right? So, okay, Genesis, oh, that's a bummer. But then we have Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 4? There's these two brothers who should be loving each other and working with each other and helping each other and their creative energy is just multiplying with each other. But what did they do instead? Well, Cain gets jealous of Abel and so he kills him. Now oh, that's a bummer, right? And then you just go to chapter six, just six chapters in. And there's this passage, nobody knows what it means. Like read 10 commentaries, you'll get 10 answers. Nobody knows what it means because it says the sons of God, the same term used in Deuteronomy 32, the Benai Elohim went to the daughters of Adam and, or yeah, the daughters of Adam and they conceived these children that were crazy, just crazy kids. And it's before refined sugar, so you can't blame it on that. <laughs> They're just nuts, right? And God's like, oh my goodness, you guys are so out of control. I got to start over. I got to reboot this thing. So he reboots and he says, all right, Noah, same mandate with you, buddy. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Image bear me once again to Noah. Noah, we, we know his story. He gets drunk in a tent and he's naked as a 600-year-old man. Terrible mental picture, <laughs> right? So, so, so you got, oh, that's a brummer. All right, but it's Genesis 11. It's Genesis 11 that God says, according to Deuteronomy 32, okay. Okay, I'm done. 
I'm doing something else. All right, so turn to, to Genesis 11 because it's a really important text. It kind of tells where we go south and tells the pathway that happens to go south. Tower of Babel. If you know the Bible, you can say the Bible is about two cities. It's a tale of two cities. Babylon and Jerusalem. City of man, city of God. So here's Babylon. Here's our introduction. Here's the launch of Babel. Verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. By the way, there are incredible echoes of this text throughout the book of Revelation. There's a one, na- na- like a one kind of thing happening in Revelation, one language, one, you know, it's interesting. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now to this point, really good. God has given dominion of earth, right? This is your place. Enjoy it. Use the raw materials of of stone and and bitumen and make creative things. Make cities and civilizations that are safe and where justice can be and there can be community and companionship. Do that. This is all good at this point. We're supposed to be that way. But it's the motivation for this city that's so south. They want to make a tower with its top in the heaven. Number two, and let us make a name for ourselves. And number three, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's three problems with this city. Number one, hey, let's not be dispersed. Let's be one city, one people, one group, all clumped together right here in this plain. What was God's command to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, right? Go out, create new communities and new cities and move out. What was God's command to Noah when he rebooted? Go out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth again. Fill it with image-bearing rule. Go, do it. And what are they saying? Forget you, God. We're not doing that. We're staying right here, okay? Problem number one, they're essentially saying to God, forget you, forget you, God. Number one, number two. They want to make a tall tower to go to the heavens. Now, a lot of people say it's to get up there and study the stars. And I have no problem with that answer. But, but I think maybe there's another answer that might explain it as well. Because I think ancient people were very intelligent. In fact, I think they're more intelligent than us today, but we have more information, more access to information. And they knew this. If they climbed up a big mountain and they spent the night up there, the stars didn't get closer to them, right? They all experienced that. No one's like, oh, dude, the stars are, I thought they'd be closer up here. They knew that. So this idea, yeah, we'll get closer to the stars. No way. I think the answer might be with this old writer named Josephus. He wrote in the first century AD, and he wrote about a guy named Nimrod. Nimrod is in chapter 10 of Genesis. He builds a city called Nineveh, and he lays the foundation of Babel or Babylon. 
right? He's the guy that starts this place. And Josephus says this about Nimrod, that Nimrod wanted to build a really tall tower, and here's why. He remembered the flood. And he wanted to make war with God as vengeance on his forefathers, and he did not want to drown in a flood. So essentially, Nimrod's saying, war. We're battling now. We're going to go after it, okay? Which in Revelation is exactly what they do. They make war with God. So number two, all right? And number three, here's what they say. We want to make a name for ourselves. Hmm. Genesis 1 is what? We're to image bear God. We're to reflect his name. Name in the Old Testament is more than, hey, Matt. Name was this, your nature and your character and your essence. So really, God was saying, when you image bear me, you're going to be bearing my name and people will see me by the way that you image bear me. You, be, you, you take my name. And what the people in Babel were saying is, no way. We are going to image bear ourselves. Forget you, God. We're not image bearing you. Do you know that's still in us today? This desire for self-glory, our own name, it's in us today. So there's this study that I read recently. And it's these questions they've asked teenagers, like going back 50 years, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, on up. And it's like, one of the questions is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there's been this consistency in them for, for decades. It was, I want to be a doctor, and I want to be a dentist, and I want to be a teacher, and I, I want to be a, a president. I'd probably vote for a teenager at this point. <laughs> All right, so constant. But now, guess what number one is? The number one thing a teen wants to be. Famous. For what? Doesn't matter. I just want to be famous. I want to make a name for myself. I want people to know my name. I want to be famous. It's number one on their list now. Oh, it's in us. Babel is still in us. Like the worst thing is not to fight. The worst thing is not to have problems. The worst thing is to be insignificant, to be ignored, to not matter. We all want to make a name for ourselves. But when we do, there's disaster, right? I, the best example I have is my Alaskan forklift story. Do you guys remember that story? Okay, we're going to take a vote. We've done this in the last service too. Who has heard that? Who has not heard my Alaskan forklift story? Well, okay, you asked for it. <laughs> do not complain, okay? All right, so going to school, Oregon State, Two years in a row, I went up to Alaska to make money to pay for college. So the first year I went up, Slimer. Fish have a lot of slime. I had a full-time job, just dealing with slime. The other thing I did though, this, this forklift driver got sick one time and I just happened to be walking out that day and this guy said, hey, do you wanna drive forklift? And I said, well, sure, why not? And what we were doing that day is this, we are offloading all the salmon onto a barge that then takes it down to Seattle. But the barge, it costs like four grand an hour for that barge to sit at your dock. Super expensive. So guess what that means? You work really hard to get the canned salmon into these shipping containers and onto that barge. So we worked three days straight 
20 hours a day. I mean, just brutal. But during that time, you're just, you become, it's like you become zen with the forklift. Just you become one with that machine. Like Myron, my three-year-old, could learn to drive really well if he had that much time. So I became a really good forklift driver. Just the process of doing these, and we did a lot of salmon that year, 400,000 pounds a day of salmon. It was unbelievable. So we're just doing these offloads, and I'm just, okay. So I got really good at a forklift. Okay, that was year one. Year two, go back up. And there's this high turnover. So uh, there's like 300 college-age kids, maybe more than that. And every year, there's maybe half of them are new. So I'm up there the next year. I'm not as a slimer, but I come up as a carpenter. And I'm there for one week or so, and I need to move this pallet of wood. So, hey, I'm a forklift driver. I'll go get a forklift. So I go walking out, and I find this forklift, and I'm wondering if I can borrow it. And I see this forklift driver. He's new. He's been there a week or so. I say, hey, buddy, um, can I borrow this forklift? And he says, oh, yeah, sure. No one's used it, using it. And he has this foggy Alaska morning. And he goes, but, but, but be careful. It's really slick on the boardwalk today. Now, I'm thinking, dude, <laughs> really? You've been here one week, all right? This is my second year. I did offloads 20 hours a day, three days straight, multiple times. Come on. And I thought about telling him all that, but I decided I will show him. <laughs> I do not need to tell anyone. I will show him. So I got on that forklift and like purposefully, I went as fast as I possibly could. I thought you will know the name Matt Heverly after this day, <laughs> right? So I get on it and I am chirping the tires and I am peeling out and I'm whizzing. It's a really long, I mean, it's a massive campus. So I'm just going on these boardwalks between these buildings and I'm thinking to myself as I drive, he's not slick today. He'll learn. Give him a month, he'll learn. So I'm whizzing back and, and I'm coming to this little S, this kind of gentle S that then goes to the carpentry shop and it's built on the boardwalk. And so I come to it and for the first time I put on the brakes. And when I put on the brakes, the tires lock up and nothing happens. I just keep sliding full speed into the side of the carpentry shop. I push that entire, it was, it's built on the boardwalk. I pushed it back 18 inches. I knocked every tool off that wall including my boss's old 1920 Chinese bottle collection, which is now a heap of nothing. And then I wedged that forklift underneath the header. It just wedged underneath there where I literally could not get out and busted out the door. So I'm sitting there now just hurting, kind of hurt as well. And I'm thinking to myself, man, the boardwalk is slick today. <laughs> All right. That day, everybody knew the name Matt Heverly. Okay. I made a name for myself. That's what happens. When we do this, we make messes. So much war, so much hurt, so much disaster is this motivation right here. So God then, I love verse five, and Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower. I just love that. We're gonna build this massive tower that's going all the way to heaven. And God's up there like, Oh, let me come down and see it. Where was it again? I can't find it. Oh, oh, that little thing. Oh, that's so cute, right? You want to see real buildings? Look, look at Everest. You know, that's what I built. Yeah, okay. And then the town is actually called Babel. Babel means the gate of God. We now think Babel like kids babbling, but the name actually means the gate of God. So what Nimrod was saying is, this is how you become God. 
You make your own city. You make your own name. You build a high tower. You do it on your own. And, and throughout the Bible, what you see is God's prerogative is to make names. Do you know that? In Genesis 12, the very next chapter, God makes the Abrahamic covenant. He calls Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and I'm going to make your name great. David, the next huge covenant God makes with Israel. Hey, David, I'm going to make an eternal throne for you, and I'm going to make your name great. Revelation 2, 7. If you persevere, if you walk with me, if you do this life, this way with Jesus, I'm going to give you a name, right? It's God's prerogative to make names, and it's humanity's problem when we make our own. We end up hurting and destroying people, okay? So God, because of Genesis 11, God reboots. Like he then just says, okay, fine, I think this is what happens personally. There's been this pattern, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 6, Genesis 9, Genesis 11. And God just finally says, okay, fine. If you guys want it that way, you can have it. Romans 1 talks about being given over to things. God is now just saying, I'm going to give you over to these other little G gods. You want to serve them? Go right ahead. And I'm going to grab this one guy named Abraham. And out of Abraham, I'm going to bring out this one nation. And from this one nation, I'm going to bring myself in Jesus. And I'm going to restore what was lost or broken. And we'll hit that in the New Testament. Okay? So that's what happens. So God then grabs Israel. They, 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 you know, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 kids. The 12 kids multiply, they go down to Egypt. In Egypt, they're put underneath Pharaoh's thumb. God goes down there, rescues his people, brings them out. And here is God's plan, his reboot, if you would, with Israel, with this nation. It's Exodus 19, which I believe is the second most important chapter in the Bible, Old Testament. And God says this, before any law, before anything, in verse 6 of Exodus 19, he says this, I want you guys, Israel, to be a kingdom of priests. What's a priest? It's someone that represents God to people. I want you guys, Israel, I want you to represent to all these nations, Genesis 1 through 11, that, that now are given over to Old Testament. I want you to represent to them what happens when you're my people. I want you to image me right with justice and kindness and compassion and long-suffering. I want you to image right so that they see that and they say, oh, I like that, I want that. Be a kingdom of priests for me. Right? It's, it's the same thing he said to Adam and Eve. Do that for me. Well, how do they do? How does Israel do in imaging God well? Well, right away you have the golden calf. Right? That's a big mistake. Like they kind of head down that way. And then you just keep reading the story. Read Joshua. Like there's huge mistakes in Joshua. Read Judges. So my wife and I decided a couple years ago to read Judges for morning devotions. Don't do that. Right? Like you're just reading along and you're like, hmm, how do I read this to my five-year-old Elijah? This guy has this concubine who gets gang raped. He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends the 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Elijah, let's see here. You know, we're going to skip that chapter. You know, we're going to skip the next chapter. You know what? We're going to read the Psalm. Let's go to the Psalms. Right? You're just like, oh, 
It's just this kind of like, oh, what happened? There's supposed to be a kingdom of priests imaging God, right? And then you just see brokenness. And it just continues on. Read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, right? Look at the kings. Was Saul a good king? Good guy or bad guy? Yes. That's the answer, right? He defended people and, and he had God's spirit on him and he prophesied, but then he got really jealous and tried to kill an innocent man multiple times. Oh, that's a bummer. David, good king or bad king? Yes, good answer, <laughs> right? Like he's amazing with Goliath. He's an amazing defender of people. And he's got this great passion for God, but he also has a passion for other people's wives. And he kills a dude to get one. And you're like, oh, dude, that's a bummer, right? Abraham, the guy the covenant was made with, good guy or bad guy? Yes, yes right? Like he's a father of faith and he believes God and it's counted him for righteousness. But then he goes down to Egypt with his, with his wife. And what does he say? Lie and tell people you're not my wife. Like, dude, bad move, man. And his wife is taken into Pharaoh's harem. Now you're like, oh. And you go throughout the Old Testament, that's what you see. There's righteousness, but there's unrighteousness. And there's holiness, but there's unholiness. And there's, there's justice, but there's, there's all this injustice. And there's care for the poor, and there's not care for the poor. It's just, you just go, oh, it's like a roller coaster. Just, oh, man. So God's reboot, you just see the same thing. Genesis 1 through 11 is really repeated uh, from Genesis chapter 12 to Malachi chapter 4. It's just repeated over and over and over and over again. You ever feel that roller coaster? Where one day you're like, I'm on it. I'm image bearing God well. And the next moment you're not. One day you're the dad, you're the mom, you're the employee, you're, you're the student that you just want to be. And then in the next moment you're like, why am I such a failure? Why do I keep losing my temper? Why do I keep saying stupid things like that? Like if we're honest, we're all Genesis 1 through Malachi 4, all right? So Moses does this amazing thing. He preaches this message. It's eight hours long. That's a long message. Eight hours long. It's recorded. It's called the book of Deuteronomy. It's where we started. And in Deuteronomy, here's what he does. He begins, chapter 6 is the introduction, and he says this. It's a command that Jesus says is number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. That's a command. Let me ask anybody, anybody here doing that one? You loving God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength? Anybody like totally dude and nailing it? Like today, right now I'm loving God, but yesterday, guess what? I loved the beavers for a little while, then I hated them when they lost, right? So there, there's this tension like, oh, yeah, I, I want this. But then there's also this, this battle that's in me. And you see it in the Kings, right? I want to be good, but then I'm bad. You see it throughout the Bible. That's really the Old Testament. So here's what Moses says. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30, the third most important chapter in the Old Testament. <laughs> Full circle now. God has this goal. I want image bearers. I want them to rule and reign like I do in the universe. I want them to reflect my justice and my mercy and my compassion and all these things. That's what I want for them. But they keep failing. 
time and time and time and time again, chapter after chapter, book after book, 39 books, okay? So here's what Moses says, Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you. So God has said, do these things, be blessed. Don't do these things, be cursed. We know what happens. They don't do it, they're cursed. It's the book of Ezekiel. So Wednesday, we're doing the book of Ezekiel. We're starting it this Wednesday and we'll, we'll kind of do a lot more work on this idea because Ezekiel is the product of all this failure. And you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will regather you again from all the people where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 6. Underline. Highlight. Key, key verse. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Did you catch that? Then he cycles of failure. So Moses is preaching this message. Hey, I've given you this command. Jesus says it's number one. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. But guess what? You can't do it. I've lived with you for 40 years. You cannot do it. Trust me, right? The entire book of Deuteronomy ends. It's a song. Moses sings a song and the song is this, you're gonna fail. That's the song, that's his ending, right? Like some people end with a benediction. Moses says, you're gonna fail. You're not gonna be able to do this. Until, until there's this moment that happens where God circumcises your heart so that you will, I have that word will circled. Now you're gonna be given the capability the power to obey. You're going to be given the absolute 100% desire to do it. This verse echoes throughout the rest of the Bible. Romans 8.3, what the law could not do, all this stuff in here, the second giving of the law, what the law could not do, God did through Jesus Christ so that we could image bear him well. Jeremiah 32, 39, I'm going to give you a new heart. Your old heart, I'm going to take away from you. Why? So that you could image bear me well. Ezekiel 11, verse 9, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so you can feel me. Why? So you can image bear me correctly. My favorite, Ezekiel 36, 25, I'm going to bring you back. I'm gonna sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'm gonna remove your heart of stone. I'm gonna give you a new heart and I'm gonna put my spirit in you. Why? So you will image bear me correctly. Like on and on and on. Romans 
chapter 2, verse 29. Circumcision is not outward, but it's inward in the heart because that's where it matters. We need heart surgery, right? That's the Old Testament. It's these cycles of, of failure, really. And it's God saying, there's coming this moment when I become a man and I reboot humanity to get us back to Genesis 1, where you can then have the ability to rule and to reign. And if you will allow me to, I will change your heart, and what's inside of you will become out of you. It will be radiating from you. My image will be seen again, okay? So here's what I liken it to. This is the rest of the series almost. Yesterday, I was sanding a piece of wood, and it kind of looked old and junky, and then as I sanded it a bunch, then all of a sudden, the wood became beautiful. Now, did I make that wood beautiful? No, what did I do? I revealed the beauty that was already there. That's all I did. I scraped off the bad stuff. I got rid of the bad stuff, and then underneath it was already the good wood, and it was revealed, and it's beautiful. That's the Christian life. God puts the gospel in us, gives us this brand new heart. It's in us now. And then there's this process that we walk through and we start to see life in a new kind of way where we're like, ah, the scraping, the sanding is actually really good. It's taking away the crud, the junk that causes Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 12 through Malachi 4. It's taking away that crud so that I image bear him right. And I start being generous and kind and just and right. And I start having these things that I say, that's who I want to be. That's, that's this series. That's this series. And so today, we get a crescendo, if you would, at the table. And to me, there's hardly a better way to think about this than communion. Because here we have God restoring and remaking us. Here we have Jesus being broken so that I could be healed. So all the broken junk in me could be remade. Titus 3, 5 says, it's regenerated. It's a beautiful word there. The, the junk has been scraped away and the beauty of what I'm supposed to be, my destiny, is revealed. It's awesome. And then we drink the cup of the new covenant. That he cleanses us and walks with us. So when you go to the table today, here's what I would say as you think through as you hold the cup, and as you hold the broken body of Jesus, it's this. Maybe it's been roller coaster for you this week. Up and down, up and down, up and down. You have this goal, like, I really want to be that. But then there's this, just the flesh. <laughs> Weakness, the world, Satan. Say, Jesus, today, through your brokenness, make me whole. Jesus, today, through your blood, wash me anew. Help me, help me to be transfigured, metamorphosized, where I reflect you well tomorrow in my family. Reflect you well at my work. Reflect you well in my neighborhood. Scrape off what needs to be scraped off so that I can do that well. And he does that brilliant work. He circumcises the heart. He changes desire. We just simply say, do it, and he does. And so, Father, 
I pray for kings and queens in training here today for myself. I pray that we could begin to see the beautiful work that you accomplish through the ordinary means of life. Sanding, so simple, but reveals who we're to be. I pray that we would be a people that live our destiny, not waiting for it to happen out there in the sweet by and by, but today live our destiny as image bearers, as those that have become regenerated, as those that are becoming transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. So through your broken body and through the blood of the covenant, Lord, would you do great heart work in us today? Where we've grown calloused, where we've grown cynical, where we've grown tired, or would you reinvigorate us and fill us with that life and that abundantly? And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.